in my brain, I'm just too stupid to know my limits. So, you know, when it comes to, well, I want to write a book and it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no business writing a book, let alone two books, but I also had no business flying airplanes at one point in my life. Right. So why not? I accomplished that and somehow got through it. This is To The Nines Podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Wicks, a mom of seven who doesn't subscribe to the idea that you have to choose between your family and a career. I am on a mission to show the stay-at-home mom who has lost herself in childcare and cocomelon and the overworked corporate holdout who isn't finding joy and purpose in their career that they can work for themselves, making an impact and an income that serves your dream life. After leaving my nursing career to raise our family, I needed more mental stimulation, but didn't want to give up the privilege of raising our legacy. I've been in network marketing now for five years. I know the strategy and mindset it takes to be successful and to live a life aligned with your values and your purpose. Join me as I share my business tips, marketing mistakes, attitude shifts you need to space out some time for you, or ditch your nine to five completely and start working for yourself. You have the power to change your life. Let's get started. This is just the beginning. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Tiffany Wicks, and I am host of To The Nines Podcast. And today I have a very special guest. I am super jacked to have you. Welcome, Todd Matson, to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, I have to tell you, I really don't know how we became friends on Facebook or Instagram. I'm pretty sure it started with my husband doing an interview, right, for your first book, you and him became buddies mm-hmm. somehow. And then whatever, we got connected. And then again, very curious, but a huge blessing to me, we kind of became accountability buddies online, <laughs> like offering sure. a swift kick in the junk when we both needed it. And consequently, we both launched our big things on the exact same day. Your second book launched and this podcast launched exact same day. So I'm just going to call it a God wink and uh, something that we were (laughs) meant to work together. Absolutely. Yeah. Congrats on the podcast, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here because I know that uh, you've been on a lot of podcasts lately, right? Trying to. You ramp them up a little bit just to get the the word out for the books and stuff like that. So, um, okay. So, know. books. You're an author, <laughs> but you're not an author. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, not by trade. So, by trade, I'm a pilot. Started in the military, did 13 years active duty, flying in the military, and then got out and started with the airlines after that. So, that's really, I guess, my profession, if you had a standard profession. But the the writing came, it was always kind of there in my life, but it came more after I got off active duty for various reasons, wanted to tell stories. And I have a very typical fighter pilot beginning of my writing, which was I was going to write an autobiography. And I wrote about half a page and realized nobody cares <laughs> about my career because I didn't do anything that special, at least compared to the rest of the people that do this job. Um, It was a very average career in my mind. So that's when it turned into more of a fiction-driven writing, and that kind of took off from there. Okay, which is hysterical, might I add, that you say it's a very average career, because turns out being a fighter pilot in any capacity, Navy, Air Force, that's like most every little boy's dream job. And you were like, (laughs) oh, it was just very average. So is that just from your personal perspective? Did you dream of being a fighter pilot as a little boy? 
So the the only connection I really have, I, I grew up in a mechanics household. My mom and dad ran a mechanic shop. My sister and I grew up there. And the only connection to aviation I had was literally one day my dad and I were fishing up in New Jersey and we saw the Blue Angels flying. And as a little kid, I literally, it's the cheesiest story and he makes fun of me every day for it. Um, but I literally pulled on his shirt and asked him like, could I do that one day? And I'll never forget that he, he just looked down at me matter of factly. And he's like, you could do anything you want to do. And that was it. And it kind of died after that. I didn't really, I mean, I grew up watching Top Gun and fly the intruder and all that, just like everybody in our generations. Um, but then fast forward to my second first year of college in my second college I went to. Um, I just happened to be walking back from class one day and the senior who was in in charge of the ROTC program that I was trying to get into asked me what I wanted to do if I got in the Navy. And I said, I, I hadn't really thought of it. And he asked, well, what about flying? And I said, the Navy's got airplanes. Oh. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm like, yeah, that'd be fun. And that was pretty much it. So there was no like, whether that was in my psyche from a childhood or not. I mean, I remember it vividly. I'll never forget that story. But it wasn't like every day I just wanted to be this pilot uh, at all. And there was really no influence in my life. I mean, my first real flight was was in flight training in the Navy. So um, really not a lot of background. I always probably thought of it as something that other people did. Um, it wasn't for me. I was, you know, my dad was a mechanic. I was probably going to work on cars. That was what I I figured, I guess. I don't know. So it kind of fell into it a little bit. But once I got the goal, then it was nobody was going to stop me. But the seed had already been planted. And for all the parents listening, like, please be incredibly mindful about how you talk to your kids and every bit of influence you have, good and bad, that has a lasting impression. And it's said that you can screw up 70% of the time as a parent, as long as you get 30% of it right your kids are going to be okay. But I'm curious, like, was that part of that 30% where your dad just dropped that seed of hope and ambition and possibility? Because I think truly in the business world, in the entire uh, US for sure, the idea of possibility is really where people are lacking. Like they just don't see that's possible for me. What could I do to get from point A to point B? Sure. And and the one thing I will say, it's funny you say that. I want to make sure my parents know that I do not think they only had 30% of good parenting because <laughs> they had a lot of yes, good parenting. Um, but but they um, you know, I what my sister and I, and we've talked about this over the years, but what we saw growing up was two parents that worked their butts off to make a business work and to make a marriage work. Um, and I mean, through thick and thin, you know, we never wanted for anything really. I mean, a middle-class family, you know, we had food on the table, we had toys to play with. We occasionally went on vacations, but like every day they were at work. And I mean, there were times where I would go a week without seeing my dad because he would wake up before me and go to work and he would come home after I was already in bed. And it was, it was just that work ethic, I think, was ingrained in me from from childhood. And no matter what I did, if I got my goal set on something, I was going to work 24-7 if that's what it needed to be to accomplish that goal. There was nothing that was going to stop me. So did they own the mechanic shop that they worked at? They did. Okay, they did. so yeah. we're missing so, that little piece oh, yeah. of the puzzle. Is There is entrepreneurship in your blood. There is. And it's, it's funny because my dad, actually, he was enlisted in the Air Force um, as a mechanic, 
and then got out and worked for some big companies going on a career progression that most would think is pretty good for, you know, the corporate world in that, in that world. And one day he tells the story that his boss was moving from New Jersey up to Boston. And he told my dad, you're, you're coming with me. And my dad quit that day, just flat out quit, went home on the way home, bought a business with his buddy Oh wow! and came home to my mom and was like, Hey, I mean, I guess like it was General Motors who he worked for. And he said, hey, by the way, I don't work for General Motors anymore. And I bought a business. And my poor mom is like, we have kids. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And But he made it work. And, you know, they he sold off that business to his friend and he started his own. And I mean, it was it was a thriving, successful mechanic shop because he put in the time. He did it the right way. He built the clientele. Um, he was honest, you know, and and. And and he did it. So I think, you know, as much as summertime's changing oil on customers' cars was not my first choice of childhood all the yeah. time. Um, it taught me a lot of valuable skills in the moment of how to work on cars, but then it also taught me a lot um as far as, you know, sometimes you don't have to like what you're doing, but if the end goal is there, it's worth it. And that's hopefully what I'm passing on to my children. Hopefully, but we'll see. Time will tell. Right. So. so clearly you got a lot of that work ethic from watching your dad. So do you think that his absence for a time, do you think that actually made you better and more equipped to be present when you're present? Because you have a career now that leaves you a little bit more absent for a time. Um, how has that mentality growing up with dad being gone, working really hard, but then being present affected you going into your new career? Yeah, I think uh, probably there's some ties there. I mean, you know, he was he was always around, but he was always busy. Um, we didn't do the family vacations, you know. I mean, I had friends that it was like twice a year they go on a big vacation. You know, we did some, we did the Disney, we did stuff like that, but not as as frequent because, as you can imagine, you know, running a business, you just don't have the time. You can't take a week off every year or so and make it work. But I have taken that on where every moment that I can be home um, is huge. Uh, it's part of the reason I didn't want to stay in the military because that seemed like that was going that way where it was just more and more deployments and I'd already done enough. Um, but with the airlines, yeah, it's it's hard. So you you find, I think, your your outlet. And, you know, for me, as you know, is instructing just like uh, your husband. And, and it's, you know, to me, that gives me that stability where now I can be home every day or more days at least. Um, because I think one of the things with the airlines that's very interesting is children lose that. They see their mom or dad go away to do their job, but they never see them actually do the job. Right. So right. they they might be very hardworking. They might be, it might be very lucrative. It, it might, you know, I, I doubt there's a lot of airline children out there that, that want for a lot. They probably get what they want um, just because of the, the financial capacity of the job, but they never actually see the parent doing the job. So um, I have noticed as my boy gets a little older, you know, I'll have a particularly challenging training session or or something like that. And I'll come home and naturally talk about it with my wife and, and he'll be listening. And, you know, you'll see kind of the gears turning as to like, oh, okay, so dad went, got up at three o'clock this morning to be at work by five. And now he's home, which is great. But oh, he worked hard when he was there. So hopefully trying to do the best that I can, you know, to show him that and show my daughter when she's older that as well. Well, I'll tell you, you're not alone in that because our two-year-old literally just said the other way, wait a minute, the six-year-old, excuse me, wait a minute, 
daddy flies airplanes? Like yeah. she's six it's, and she had no yeah. idea that's what daddy did for work. So we have a unique um, arrangement here where I work from home. Clearly I'm a business owner. I work from home. My kids see the work that I do. They see when mm -hmm. I'm on Zooms. They see when I'm hosting team calls. They see when I'm recording a podcast. They see when I'm running my content, um, either for social or for email lists. They see when I'm, you know, receiving client orders or delivering them. Like they see it all. So all there, they're like, okay, dad goes. And apparently mm -hmm. he's working. And I say, hey, look, daddy works really hard when he's away. You see how mama's working? You just see what I do. You don't see that. Yeah. So they've got a different perspective that they're like, okay, I see her doing this here, but daddy's doing the same thing, just not. So it's fun yeah. to be able to marry the two and say, it's sure. very similar. Very cool. Yeah. So I am always, okay, so pilots, this is a thing y'all. Okay. Um, for YouTube who's watching, this is a total thing. Pilots have side gigs. Although, as you mentioned, the financial capacity is really great in the commercial pilot world, like past, you know, the smaller airliners, what are they called? Lo sure. Not local. Regionals. Regionals. But Regional. past the regionals. Local. The local people. The local you know, airliners. The ones, the little city yes. to city ones. You um, will get no comments from that, I will, I'm sure. Yeah, there's not to belittle <laughs> regionals, although that probably sounded a little fun. Yes. So the, although the financial capacity is really great, a lot of you guys have side gigs. Tell me what is up with that. This can't be about the money. I think it has a lot to do. Well, I mean, for some, I think it is right. Um, one of the cliches of a pilot is they're the smartest person in any room. <laughs> Just let them give you five minutes and they'll tell you that. And so they think they can do a lot. Right. So I think there is something in the ability that once you control an aircraft and it really doesn't matter the type, the style, the size. I mean, it's, it's really the feeling is no different from flying a single seat fighter off an aircraft carrier or flying an airliner with 200 people behind you. It's that control that you can handle what's going on. So now it, it takes your, your glass ceiling and it eliminates it. So one of the stories I tell that is funny and my wife laughs at this was when we first started dating. So I was throughout my whole career, flew a bunch of different planes, but at this point in my career, I was flying fighters in California and we met which is a long story, but we were just sitting on, I wasn't, I didn't even have my own house. I was staying with friends because I was getting ready to go on a deployment. So we're sitting on their couch and we're watching a stand-up comedian. That's all we're doing. It's just our date, you know, our little fun date. And, um, and I go, I was like, yeah, that'd be fun to do. And she looks at me and I mean, we had only been dating a month and she goes, you genuinely believe that you could get up on stage in front of a group of people and make them laugh as much as this professional comedian. Right. And I was like, sure, why not? Why couldn't I do that? And she brings that up to this point because it shows that the glass ceiling isn't there in my brain. Somewhere it went away. And it I think you see that with pilots where they've accomplished something to such a level that that natural, um, just self-deprecating, just you can't do this, you weren't meant to do this, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that comes right. across as cocky to people we deal with, um, a lot of it, right? Because, I mean, there's not a person out there that hasn't met a cocky pilot unless they haven't met a pilot. That's just the reality of it. But I think that's really what it is. And and I joke with her, and I've said it before, and somebody actually quoted me on social media when I did one of these podcasts where, in my brain, I'm just too stupid to know my limits. So, you know, when it comes to, like, well, I want to write a book, 
And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no business writing a book, let alone two books. But I also had no business flying airplanes at one point in my life, right? So why not? I accomplished that and somehow got through it. Not the prettiest way by any means uh, for the struggles I had going through. But if I could get through that, why can't I apply this to to this or, or whatever I'm doing, whether it's I want to restore a car or I want to work out and, you know, hone my my body or my image to look a certain way or whatever I want to do. I've kind of always looked at it that way after I learned how to fly. Before I learned how to fly, I was not that way. So there's something there that just kind of opened me up to be like, like I said, too stupid to really know my limits. And now I'm just too old to care. Well, I mean, at this point, you're defying gravity, right? It's like you are in this machine that is defying physics as a whole. So it's like, well, shit, I am quite literally on top of the world like what can knock me down? And I'm so tired of the why me question in society instead of why not me. And that ended up being your story. So you opened the door a little bit and that was where I was getting to next was (laughs) there were some struggles along the way. It's not like you just walked in there and be like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. You're like, come on in, Mr. Matson. Tell me a little bit more about the struggles and how the hell you persevered. We could probably do a week-long podcast on the struggles that I've had. You've had many or they were large? Uh, both. Um, so okay. I, Let's do it. I am very, I love meeting people who had a background in aviation and loved aviation and their goal, you know, daddy was a fighter pilot. I'm going to be a fighter pilot or whatever the stereotype is. And they just go through and they do it because um, I would imagine that has to be so much fun like just taking in every moment of the whole process. Um, That was not me. Again, didn't have an aviation background, completely blew off my first year of college. I mean, an embarrassing level. Um, I was not challenged. I was not in the right place. Um, Had to transfer, essentially. The school told me. They're like, thanks, but no thanks. So had to transfer. Went down to, to the second school and walked in for whatever reason to the ROTC unit, like I'm going to join this, you know, the Navy, except the problem was I was 325 pounds at the time. Really? And how tall are you? Six, two. Yeah. I knew you were a tall guy. And I told this Navy Lieutenant who this is his active duty job. I was like, yeah, I want to join the Navy. And he was like, absolutely, you know, sure. These are some of the requirements. This is what you're going to need to do. And I'll never forget it. There was a chief petty officer who I will never forget was in this office. And he was just kind of sitting there listening. And I could see that he was like an old school chief petty officer. Like he was the he was the generation chief petty officer in the Navy that discussed things with people in a closet. If you catch my drift, like there was yeah. a lot of physical. Yeah. That's how he was brought up. He was kind of the old school Navy And um, so this lieutenant, very pressed and proper and all that, and in charge of the unit, you know, tells me everything. Well, as I'm walking out of the office, I hear him laugh, like, about me. Like, there's no chance this kid's going to make it. And I walked out and I walked down the hallway a minute and I just kind of stood there against the wall. And I was like, man, I guess that's that. You know, this guy doesn't think I can do it. And the chief petty petty officer walks out and he looks at me and he goes, you really want to fly for the, or you want to join the Navy? And I was like, yeah, chief, I thought I did but that guy doesn't think I can do it. And he looked at me and he goes, F that guy. Who's he? He's nobody. He goes, you want to do it? You do it. And something clicked to where I was like, yeah, like, who is that guy? So 
I started, I lost the weight. I went from 325 pounds to being in charge of the whole ROTC and core cadets physical fitness program the next year. I mean, I just, when I went after it, I went after it, but then it was time to actually get commissioned. Right. And you have to do a physical. I got disqualified. You're not going to be in the Navy. Sorry. And I'm like, for what? No. Uh, Well, one thing was a weight, but they gave me a waiver. Um, cause I was in better shape at that point. It wasn't it just, they have their height weight charts, but it's because I had an eighth of an inch underbite at the time, an eighth what? of an inch underbite. And I was like, I was completely demoralized because I had worked on this for four years to get in and to hopefully get an aviation spot. And they're telling me, no, same chief petty officer still there. And he goes, let me get this straight. On the one hand, you're overweight for your height, according to this Navy chart. And I was like, yeah, chief. He goes, but on the other hand, according to this regulation, it says that your underbite is so bad that you cannot eat properly. Now, does that make a whole lot of sense to you? That doesn't make any sense. And he's like, I see you around campus and you're not sucking milkshakes every day. So we're going to fight this. And we fought it and I got a waiver and I got in. And then, you know, get my aviation spot. And then I find out that I get violently airsick flying violently threw up every one of my first flights until my solo to the point where it was a huge deal. And it was through air force primary. Cause I got the luxury of going through air force primary and every flight I would throw up and I would either get enough done on the flight that they would pass me where I would fail the flight and I'd have to do it again. They would go send me over to physiology. This poor girl would put me in this chair and spin me until I threw up again is a ways to desensitize myself but I wasn't going to quit because in my mind at that point, if I gave up, I mean, and this sounds dumb, but I had a truck payment to make. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I've never had a payment. So I've got to do this until they physically throw me out. Um, and I eventually got over it. And it just kind of went from there. I didn't get jets uh, initially. I flew the Hawkeye, but I made the best out of it and and enjoyed it. And in, and in reality, I actually kind of in a lot of ways, liked it better. It was a better community. It was more fun. Um, so it's just been one thing after another to include all the way up to medical issues where sinus problems that almost killed me at one point um, legitimately almost killed me. And it was just like, okay, every day I'm going to deal with whatever's given to me today. And I'm just going to keep going because I still got breath in my lungs. There's nothing. I mean, they haven't stopped me yet, right? It's the old adage. And we see this stuff on social media. It's like, you've you have overcome every struggle that's been put in, in front of you so far. So I'm like, and again, maybe it's just I'm too stupid to know how to quit at that point. Like I had just started getting these successes and I'm like, well, if I give up now, then I mean, what was it all for? It was a waste of time. So just keep going. Eventually somebody, you know, I was kind of waiting for somebody to tell me like, okay, you're done. Like this is too much. Your career's over. Like, I don't know how you got you. this far. People did. They did. You. I just didn't and then listen. You said, screw that. Yeah, I didn't listen. Um, and one of the stories I tell is I had got through the air sickness. I had selected the E2. Um, eventually, I ended up in Kingsville, Texas, flying the T-45. And one day, I'm doing a, a night flight with an instructor. And it's a very small plane anyway. And I'm not a small guy. But I knew, you know, I mean, physically, I had fit the standards by the Navy. They did all the measurements. And the instructor does a wipe out of the controls. And I wasn't ready. And it got caught on my kneeboard. Right. So he freaks out and we go fly the flight. We come back. Nothing is said, which shows how good of a person he is. Right. I'm a firm believer. If you have a problem with somebody, you say it to their face politely. You don't have to be an ass about it, but say it to their face. Right. But he doesn't. He goes to the chain of command. The next thing I know, I'm not on the flight schedule the next day. 
then I am. And then the instructor flying with me is like, Hey, I was told I have to check to see if you fit in the back of the plane. And I'm like, where's this coming from? And he explained to me, I go fine. And, and I did, it was fine. So after that flight, I was grounded for a month, one month I was grounded. I literally showed up for squadron duty officer one day and the skipper came up to me and he's like, you know why you're here. Right. And I was like, I figured it was my day to be on duty, sir. Like, oh. I don't, you know, and he goes, Oh, well, let's go talk. And he goes, yeah, you don't, you don't fit in the plane. And I was like, but, but I do like, here's all my records yeah. and everything's there. Like, and he goes, so we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do with you. So it really pissed me off because what I realized that day wasn't that I didn't fit in the plane. I didn't fit the image of a pilot, oh, right? Man, The image is the, the Tom Cruise Top Gun image, the, the tiny guy that's just everything's perfect and everything looks perfect and they're pretty and all that. And I didn't fit that image. And the way I got back at them is Kingsville, Texas, South Texas, summertime. I would look at the flight schedule and highlight every high ranking officer that was coming or going to work. And I would be out on the one road going to work and I'd be out running when they were driving in every day. To and from, they'd see me out there every time they came in and every time they left, I was out there in 110 degree heat, just killing myself. And I figured my thought was, they'll see that I'm willing to do the work and they're going to have to prove legally that I can't fly this plane. And ultimately, I ended up just being back on the flight schedule one day, a month later, like nothing had happened. And I went through and got my wings. And so it did something, but it was ridiculous. It's like, you're wasting so much time here. You know, you could have focused on the fact that I was a very average pilot and could have washed me out for that, but they chose this and I had a way to control it. So. Okay. So that's what I'm taking out of those struggles right now is the ability to control what you can control. Although outcomes can generally be completely like out of your hands, but there are things that you can put in place and per the book, because let's get back to the book for a second. The book has like every element in it, right? It has surprise, it has deception, it has deceit, it has love interest, but kind of the main theme, well, one of the main themes that we picked up on reading this book is that you make a plan. And then as a pilot, you make contingent plans for all those plans that may fall through. And then you've got to think through each one of those plans to figure out where those are going to fail and then once you've got the main plan and then the sub plans and then the sub plans for the sub plans, nonetheless, you still go forward with the mission. Yeah, you never um, you can try to plan it all out. And I do. But at some point, you just got to kind of crap it or, or get off the pot. I mean, it's time to go. And um, and I think aviation, combat aviation teaches that very quickly. Um because you're going to be thrust into situations where whether it's an aircraft system malfunction or a flight you weren't expecting to do or a combat situation or just landing on an aircraft carrier at night and whether you weren't expecting, like you have a choice. And and I've had this discussion with my son who's about to turn five and, and we were doing something and, and, uh, and he goes, well, I I didn't want to do it. So I was scared. And I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, well, there's nothing wrong with being scared. I'm not trying to tell you not to be scared. I go, but at some point in your life, you have to choose that you're going to be scared. You're not prepared, but screw it. You're going to do it anyway. And whatever comes out the other side is where you're supposed to be. And you may not see that right now. And I didn't see that necessarily in multiple times in my career. I did not see that in any of the writing. 
I mean, if you would have told me three years ago when this whole endeavor really started that I would have people telling me on social media that I saved their life because of the the mantras that they've heard me either preach on social media or read in the book or things like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I just wrote a story about some pilot. Like I didn't, you know, and they're like, no, like really I, just the way you present yourself and all this, like I was at the end, man, I was ready to go. And, and I heard you say something or you wrote something on social media and it's like, holy crap. I mean, so the connection and the, the interweaving of everything in our lives is so ridiculous. And, and we, as people, especially type A people want to understand it all. But at some point at the end of the day, you just have to say, screw it, let's go. And it's, it's time to go. And you just, you deal with it, whatever happens. Okay. So this loops all the way back to your dad with the seeds that you plant with the words that you say, right? How you speak is so important. The words you say to yourself, more importantly, how you work on your own brain, the words you say to other people and the words you say to your family, your followership, the things you put in the book. Like it all has a ripple effect and an impact on everyone who comes in contact with you. Sure. So, okay. So you have the hashtag and I love it because I kind of lived this as my own personal mantra. I just Good. never knew it until I saw it is uh hashtag never down, never out. Correct. Right. So tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, the character in the book, Rattler, he's very much, he's been out, he's been down, sure. but he was never out. Uh, and all the way to the end, it came close. I won't give away the ending because it gets, uh, forgive me, but it gets a little dicey sure. at the end. That's a good way to put um, it. That's a good way to put it. And you have to read the ending to really get that joke. Sure. Um, but don't skip to the end no. because the whole story builds on it. Um, gets a little dicey at the end. But tell me about that hashtag because that can't just be about a book. That has got to be reflective of your personal life. So it's really funny. This whole thing starts, right? So I have a, I have a book out now and I've accomplished that. Right. And I'm, there's something, anybody who's written it and I know you're writing one and I will 100% back you on any help you need with that because it truly is. I cannot physically create life like you can, but it's the closest I could get holding the first time you open the box of your first book. Like there is something there where you're like, wow, like I accomplished all this. Right. So that had happened. I had had it. It's out there. People are reading it. It's getting good feedback. I'm surprised. I'm getting these people are following me. And then somebody on social media is like, well, do you have any merchandise? And I'm like, and again, I do have my moments of being a cocky, arrogant pilot. And I'm like, merchandise, I got a book, bro. Like buy the book. Like what more yeah. merchandise <laughs> Does a, an author need, right? Well, then I start looking at it and I'm like, well, actually people do have stuff, right? They have coins, they have stickers, they have patches, they have all this stuff, right? Hats, everything. But I'm like, what the hell am I going to put on it, right? So one day I have a friend and I have known him since my first deployment, actually in flight school. Um, we are still very close to this day. He may or may not be a character in the book. And I call him up and I was like, Hey, I need a motto. I need, I need something. Right. And he's like, dude, I'm at a party. I'm hammered. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm trying, I need something. I go five words or less that describes me go. And I will not tell you what he said at first. It's not appropriate for a motto, <laughs> but I was like, seriously, dude, I'm like, nobody knows me better than you. You've we've been through everything together. Go. And then he gets very serious and he goes, never down, never out. And I go, 
and I said it, my wife was literally in the room and her kind of, she does what wives do, right? The smarter of the relationship and her eyebrow goes up (laughs) a little bit. She smiles. Right. And I go, I like it. What does it mean? He goes, I'll tell you tomorrow. And he hangs up on me. I was like, okay. So I write it down. That was it. He calls me the next day, completely hungover. Just, I mean, hammered, hammered night. They were out at a hockey game next day, hungover. And I was like, do you even remember what you said to me? And he goes, oh, I remember. He goes, I have known you over two decades. He goes, no matter what. He goes, it doesn't matter if the Navy was trying to hold you down, health issues, family issues. It did not matter at all. Extending of deployments, getting injured. It didn't matter. He goes, you never let it get to you. He goes, so you are either up or you were getting back up in the whole time we've known each other. So you've never been down, never been out. And I was like, I was like, dude, it's awesome. I love it. Um, I now have rights to it. So it's not yours anymore. You can't use it. So I'm going to charge <laughs> you every time you say it. But no. So then it was like, okay, let me start putting this on things, right? Like, well, what do I put it on? So I have I mean, coins, bottle breachers, all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's funny because it kind of took off where people... Um, you know, I would start Monday mornings on social media. I would just take a random generated photo from the Navy of usually somebody launching off an aircraft carrier. And I'm like, it's Monday morning. Get your ass up. Let's go. You know, and I'd put the hashtag. And then, you know, this was going on for about six, seven, eight months. And I did another podcast with somebody that we both know. And he kind of made a joke about it, right? Where he's like, you with these motivational things, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't know. I just, I do it, you know, whatever. It's, And I got more messages from that of like, do not stop. Like that gets me through my day. I waking up and seeing your picture of a launch on an aircraft carrier Monday morning is what gets my ass out of bed. And I'm like, wow, so there's something to this. So it kind of stuck with that. And it's funny now my almost five-year-old when he's having a rough day, what does he say to me? He's like, never down, never out, dad. And I'm like, there you go, kid. Oh my gosh, that just about made me start crying. Okay, because I cannot handle anything with kids right now because it's got to be my pregnant state, but I've got tears now because, I mean, what an amazing influence and impact you are having, not just on your own family, but for the people who follow you. I mean, to have somebody message you and say, I was just about to end it all, but I saw something you produced and that's what pushed me through. I mean, can you speak to the kid stuff crushing me? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Can you speak to... Who was that influence for you? The, hey, never down, never out, keep going, keep going. Because sure, it was in your brain, but that influence had to come from somewhere else. I mean, I would assume outside of just watching your parents work hard. I honestly, I really do think it was my parents primarily. Um, I think watching them, you know, there are, there are ups and downs and highs and lows through business. And, you know, I, you know, you overhear things, right? I mean, you're a kid and you hear the conversations of financials. I mean, um, and you, you kind of, you could catch a vibe. I mean, kids are a lot smarter than even I give my kids credit for, you know, I mean, they know, and, um, you know, my wife and I are like, we got to go outside to talk, you know, if there's something going on or if there's an issue or, um, because they pick up on it. And my sister and I picked up on that, you know, and again, we didn't necessarily want for anything. Um, but I could tell that it, you know, it was tough on my parents a lot. So, you know, my dad never, never gave up. He could have gone and gotten his job back. He could have, I mean, it wouldn't have been a problem at all to go back to one of the major automotive corporations and, 
and pick up on it where he left off and take the easy route. But he never did because he wouldn't have been true to himself at that point, which, you know, if he couldn't be true to himself, he can't be true to us. So um, I really did see it there. And then, and then, like I said, it was that one first success of, and it, it must've, it, I think, I mean, it probably was finally getting accepted in the Navy, but then that first success of passing my safer solo flight, which is a hilarious story that I've turned told before that is embarrassing to all end, but getting past that and not giving up and then going and flying by myself. And you're like, well, that's one win. And that's all we ever need, right? We don't need, you don't need when you're 20 something years old or 40 or 60 or 80, you don't need to have a win that makes you billions of dollars and fame and anything you want. You need one small win. That's it. And then it's, it's okay. Well, I did that. Well, now your brain opens up this door where it's like, well, maybe you could do this. And then it's like, okay. So then you had that win and it's just this snowball effect of things. And, and at some point you, like I said, you get too stupid to understand your limits. I mean, I was told a million times I should not be a pilot. I was told a million times that, you know, that the path I was on was wrong. I mean, I literally had an instructor look at me after a flight and ask me, he goes, do you do anything well? And I was like, excuse me. And he's like, cause you're never going to earn your wings. So if you have another skill set that you do well, you might want to focus on it. This is a primary flight school instructor. Like, oh my God. Who says that? Like, I hope he's listening. That guy, clearly. <laughs> I hope he's listening, but it's, it's just funny. It's like, what, like, what are you talking about? So, um, so I think that's really what it was is it's just at some point you get so deep into whatever path you're on that you can't quit because you've put so much into it that it's like, or what? I mean, if I quit now, it was all a waste of time. So I could fail. I've failed a ton, but I'm sure as hell not going to quit. Well, and that just, I mean, I think it crumbles your character at some point if you're just like, okay, it's a wrap. I guess I'll just go back to McDonald's, sure. um, which is a great launching post for a teenager. Sure. Um, that Those jobs are not designed for capable adults. Those are a launching point. Sure. And what I'm hearing from you is you did not have an entire crowd of people. Yay, <laughs> go Todd, you can do it. You had a lot of people that were really not in your corner, but you had one prominent figure, well, two, a pair, yep. prominent figures in your life that you said, if they can, I can. And you kept asking yourself the same question. You got one small win. All right, I made it. I dropped the weight. That's one small win. Take one small step forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got through the the sickness. Okay, move that. Another small step forward. There were no large leaps, right? No. For you, like across the finish line. It was the 1% slightly better than the day before that got you to the finish line of quite literally being a fighter pilot in the Navy, flying most of a career, and then sw- 13 years, you said, 14? Yeah, and then some in the reserves. So, yeah. Yeah, so you finished a career in the Navy as almost every little boy and some girls dream job. And then you move over into one of the major airlines in the world flying at the top of your game. Now you're instructing people how to fly. I mean, those are huge wins. And then you're like, I think I'll write a book. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So writing was not in your background, right? You were not this super academic, 
um, English loving guy. No, there's, there's, there is one childhood story that I am now allowed to tell. If you want to hear it from my mother, she has given me permission. Um, Let's go. But there was no real writing in my background. So where my style, if you read the books is different than most people in this genre that write. And I think what that style is most easily described is when you read the book, it's like I'm sitting there telling you the story. It's bro level. It is. It's bro level, bro level conversational. Like you were sitting in a bar having a conversation. You're like, so here I was, Correct. you know, on this airplane. And then it's all, it's literally like you're sitting next to a person having a beer, hearing a conversation. Correct. It makes it so readable. The reason and it's funny, I've heard that from a lot of people, the number one, I mean, there's always critics, but the number one positive that I hear is I picked the book up, I couldn't put it down, read it straight through. And the second book has been getting that feedback too. But it all really changed on one day when I was, I want to say I was maybe eight, 10 years old. I'm not really good with grades that you'd be in at that age, but we had an assignment. Third, fourth grade. Yeah, I'll, that's probably it. Maybe a little bit older, but we had an assignment. And the assignment was we had to write a two-page essay in school, okay? Um, and I came home and I wrote it and I brought it. I'll never forget the room my parents were sitting in watching TV and I brought it to them to read, to proofread. And I walked away. My dad's like, we'll read it. We'll call you back in. I'm like, okay. I walked away. And I had forgotten to tell them something. Well, when I came back and they didn't know I was around the corner, my mom was crying. And the reason my mom was crying, and I'm not belittling this, I mean, this has been something I grew up with, but I have a cousin who um, is mentally challenged. And my mom literally read what I wrote. And I remember her saying to my father, do you think Todd is like Joey? And it made me so angry because I'm like, wait, no. So I went back in my room and I rewrote it like I was talking to you, like I was telling you, the reader, the story. It took me 10 minutes and I brought it back and I was like, hey, sorry guys, uh, I don't know what's going on, but let me get that one back. That was, I, I gave you the wrong one. Here's the right one. And I walked back, go back in my room. Now I hear yelling and I'm like, what's going on? It's my five year older than me sister getting grounded for writing my report. And so that day I changed how I wrote. In an instant, I remember it vividly. Um, I went from trying to sound smart, which a lot of people do, to just being myself. And I don't have to, I mean, I have the luxury in this arena that I don't have to really prove much to anybody. I mean, my career proves it and I have the knowledge of it. And so I'm going to talk to you like I'm telling you a story, just like you said, like it's in a bar. Um, but there was really no formal. Now, writing did come throughout in my career. I mean, I was a business major. And then when I went on my first deployment, um, I was presented with the opportunity to get my master's degree. And I did that while on deployment. Um, and that was all writing. I mean, it was 100% correspondence from the University of Oklahoma. So while a lot of guys in my room on the ship are playing video games, I'm writing reports on women in leadership and all sorts of stuff like that. But I never stopped writing it the same way as I did that day. And so that's really kind of where it came. And I, I think that's still my style to this day. And, and people either love it or they hate it. You know, there's been plenty of negative. I love the negative as much as the positive because it's funny to me. There's not an author out there that doesn't have one-star reviews. I don't care how good they are. I remember literally watching, there was an author who would go on YouTube and do like funny reviews or bad reviews and they would just read their reviews and they'd have a stack of them. 
And one was like, he was referring to the book he wrote and he goes, too detail oriented. Like, this is ridiculous. I don't need to know the, the, the spin of the bullet as it fires. Right. And he's like, sorry. And then he goes to the next one. It's like not detailed enough. And like, that is truly the epitome when you get into this world is like, you can't make everybody happy. So I stopped trying and I'm just like, be yourself, write your story, get it out there. The people that want to read it and enjoy it will the people that don't, they're not for me and that's fine. And, but it gets the story out there and it, it it's a style that I think is unique. I did say prior to treason flight coming out that I was going to do two things. I was going to tell a story that nobody's ever heard before, which I think I was successful in. It's not your typical aviation story by any stretch of the imagination, uh, nor is the second. And on the first, I was going to make the E2 sexy. And I think I accomplished that too, because it's a plain, you know, maybe much like how I look at myself, it's the underdog. It's not the flashy in your face plane. It's the plane nobody's ever heard of. And, you know, I did the research. Nobody's ever written a fictional book about the Hawkeye ever. So it doesn't hurt to be the first on something. So for sure. Oh my gosh. There's so much about what you just said that my brain was like trying to catalog it all. Cause I'm like, Holy cow, it's going to be really easy to pull sound bites out of this entire interview because, I mean, what I'm getting out of this, and these are the things I talk about on my platform all the freaking time. And when I'm doing business mentoring, I'm like, okay, number one, you've got to find your own voice. And you know what? I was actually guilty of something very similar to this this morning. Adam was showing me these really ridiculously stupid 10-second video clips of some guy with a large rear end. I don't even, but he's got this like, strangely bulbous butt sure. okay you're like why is your it husband does not surprise me that an air force pilot would have videos like that by the way so but he this guy does these skits and it's kind of highlighting the fact that he has a very strange anatomy which he could have very well hidden and been like well this is my weird thing but instead he's like this is my thing yeah so he is putting it out there and he's like this is hysterical the dude was on a flatbed truck you know huge um semis have these signs that say wide load on it he's got himself strapped to the flatbed wide load and it's like well that's funny because he's got a big butt yeah. all the things anyway my comment was i said well maybe i should do 10 second funny video clips and adam looked at me and he was like why would you do that? That's not your thing. Not your thing. That's his thing. Yep. And I was like, oh, so it was like, here's a piece of humble hot pie, baby. Shoved yep. it right in my face this morning. And he was like, your content is valuable enough as it is. He said, stay in your own lane. Yeah. And I was like, okay. All right. Thank you for that call out. Well, and I, and I agree. And you, you see that a lot in writing. Um, and one of the cool things about doing um, writing the books, then doing podcasts is a lot of writers have podcast. So they want to talk to you about it because that's their audience. And you get that question a lot. It's like, well, how did you come up with this angle or how'd you do this? And I'm like, it's, it's, it's me. I, you know, who did you read to emulate? And I'm like the last book that I really read that I would say my style, if anything comes across was flight of the intruder in the eighties. Like I don't, I do read to this day. I enjoy reading, but that's their style, right? Just because an author right is immensely successful and they're out there and their books are, are on my bookshelf and I enjoy reading them. I'm not trying to make myself that author. I'm, I am who I am. And, and I think that being genuine, which is what you do on this is what people really appreciate. You know, they don't need another 
name the author or name the, you know, the businesswoman or like, they don't need that. They have that. If they want that, they're going to go follow that person. They need something new. They need something fresh. Everything that's been put out there has not touched the individual that's still looking for stuff, right? Like it, it hasn't, they have looked at everything and that the light bulb has not gone off. So if they come across your site or your information and what you're putting out, then they're looking for it and they very well may find it with you as long as you don't try to emulate everybody else that's out there. Right. And that's probably, I think one of the traps people fall into is they are like, well, they're successful. They have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, cool. But that's because they came up with that thing. Like there might be some aspects of it that you're like, oh, that's how you market things or that's how you do this or that. But if you never apply it to who you really are, then you're just kind of faking it. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you said that because I was just on a call the other night where this person said, fake it till you make it. And I'm like, not a huge fan of that saying, because I said, listen, if you fake it too long, you will start to forget what's even real. Correct. Correct. So I like to take inspiration and not turn that into emulation. Sure. hundred percent. I agree. So you've got to find who you are and be unoffendably proud of that. And put that out there because, yes, as you pointed out accurately, not everybody's going to like you. There are always going to be critics. One will say your shirt is too black. The other one's going to say it's not black enough. Mm-hmm. If someone is going to hate on what you do, but it doesn't matter because those people were never for you to begin with. And that is something I think you go back to the parental uh, influence. I remember my father telling me, you know, good day, bad day, whatever. You know, he's like, one thing you're going to do at the end of every day is brush your teeth. Right. And I'm like, yeah. So he's like, hopefully. So he goes, that's your time. And now he pitched it, you know, as kind of being a man, but it was also a different time. Right. And he was also raising a boy. So, um, but he said, part of being a man is looking in that mirror when you're brushing your teeth and asking yourself, did you do the best you could do today? If the answer is yes. Awesome. You get six to eight hours to rest on your laurels before you have to do it again. He goes, but if the answer is no, you don't get to rest that night. You better think about it all night on how you're going to fix it for the next day. And he said that to me once as a child. I've never forgotten that. And I do it every day. I mean, and there, trust me, not every day is a win. Not every day. There's plenty of days where I'm like, damn it. You know, I, I, I could have been a better father. I could have been a better husband. I could have been a better instructor. I should have written more, should have worked out harder. Okay, how can I apply that and make one of them better tomorrow? And just do something, that you know, made like every hair on my arm stand up when you said that story right there, because I think pe- people are missing that they do this level of introspection, like did I did I and then they miss that last part, which is key, which is okay, I didn't, I sucked at whatever I did. Okay, that's a level of personal accountability. But then that's where they stop. They just get into this shame spiral, where it's like, well, I did that. That sucked. I suck. Now I've got shame. I am bad. Rather than I did something bad, it turns into, well, I am bad now. But no, you just didn't perform that part of it really well. And then that last section, that's what we're missing a lot in this world, especially in business, young entrepreneurship, um, and not necessarily young people, but just young in business sure. and life and teenagers, children, is they have no resilience. They have no ability to bounce back from saying, here's where you sucked. Okay, now how are we going to make it better? Mm -hmm. How are we going to improve going forward? So if you have a problem, you just don't stop at, 
there's the problem. I'm bad. You're bad. We're all bad. Throw up our hands, walk away. Don't launch the thing. Don't write the book. Don't get the ideas. Don't do the interview. They just stop there instead of, all right, well, I'm sure there's got to be a way to make this better. So let's start asking some better questions of ourselves rather than just getting in that shame, you know, whirlpool and then just living there and just stopping never down, never out. You may stumble, but you can't get out of the race. Because then what does that do to your entire psyche of further success, future success, or even potential embedded success? Like you're done. You already took yourself out. You did. But there's a flip side to that. And that's the other thing that I truly believe is you can't read your own press. And that's what people do too. Yeah, I have yet to read a single review. (laughs) Well, but I just mean in life, right? So I had, I'll never forget this day. I was on the carrier I was a hotshot E2 pilot. I had a particularly beautiful, which is rare, landing. I was proud of myself, right? I did it. It was perfect. It was beautiful. Eye-watering landing. And that is not an easy plane to land on a ship. On a ship, no less. Dear goodness. And I remember walking down the passageway and my CAG, who's the Navy captain 06 in charge of our whole air wing, is walking the other way. And our CAG was the former skipper of the Top Gun school, like actual old school fighter pilot. Oh yeah, old school fighter pilot, big mustache, smoke cigarettes wherever he wanted to, use four letter words everywhere. I mean, he was the epitome of like an 80s, 90s era fighter pilot, right? And he saw the landing and he's like, I was like, see that landing today, sir? Pretty good, huh? And he goes, yeah. He goes, don't read your own press. And I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, that ship will kill you tomorrow. He goes, it doesn't matter how good you are today. Tomorrow, it'll kill you. And he walked away. And that don't read your own press is stuck with me too. So I think life and where you see people excel, and I don't have all the answers by any means. And and I don't even necessarily look at myself and go that I'm this crazy successful individual. But where you see people succeed and excel is because they can balance between, I got knocked down, I'm going to get back up. But then I had a win. But well, that was just one win. Let me I have to keep winning every day or else, you know, and that's where you see people go off the rails. Right. It's no different than than being on a train track where you can go off one side because you just spiral downhill, just like you said. Or you could have that one win and you're like, man, I'm the best ever. Nobody can touch me. And while you're over on the sidelines, patting yourself on the back, everybody else just passed you. And all of a sudden now you're like, what just happened? Like. I was so great. And it's like, well, in that moment you were, but that was one moment. So the thing about life that I will hopefully try to teach my kids is that somewhere staying between those and you're, you're never going to be perfect. You're going to bounce off both of those sides. There's times when I get a five-star review that I just walk in and print it out, show it to my wife. I'm like, no big deal. Kind of a big deal though. I mean, you know, five-star when the book went, you know, number one on, on Amazon, I'm like, you know, no big, I don't, you know, I literally walked up to her. I'm like, I don't need you to always refer to me as a best-selling author, but occasionally if you want to throw it in there, that'd be great. You know, sprinkle it in there at bedtime. And she's like, like, did you vacuum today or did, and I'm like, (laughs) So you bounce let's get, off let's get back to the meat of the subject. Yeah, you bounce <laughs> off both sides. And I think that's where you actually move forward. I think if you get stuck on either side, you're you're just wasting time and it's too short. I mean, life's too short to waste that time. You gotta go. That is the balance of humility versus celebrating your wins when you've got them. Yeah. Because you will never always be on top forever. There's somebody constantly nipping at your heels looking to take you down. Yep. So 
You've got to celebrate your wins when you've got them and say, hey, I did great and be okay with that. And then eat your humble pie and realize tomorrow there's going to be somebody better. It's going to be a more skilled writer. They're going to be a better aviator. They're going to be a better podcaster. I mean, I feel like we are almost in the exact same um, time frame of life where we're both launching these big things at the same time and we're getting some great feedback and it's like, okay, that's awesome. And, you know, I texted Adam the other day and I said, Hey, I got this, you know, somebody had texted me something and said, Hey, this is a really great podcast. And I was like, and I'm as proud as I am to hear that. I'm like, I'm still scared. Okay. So in case you're curious, yes, I'm still scared. What if I can't put out great content? What if my content stops resonating with people? What if I'm not making the impact I want to make? What if one day everyone's like, well, this sucks now. And then like, she's lost her mojo. Like, well, when did that happen? I don't even know how it happened. You know, these things still get into my head, but I don't let them live there rent free. Correct. I acknowledge that presence and I say, okay, I see you. I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make me aware that I need to stay on top of my game. I need to not rest on my current success. And then I need to be looking at, okay, where can I continually improve this? Because there's somebody coming behind me that's going to eat my ass up if I don't stay on top of my game. Yep, 100%. So speaking of things coming behind other things, you've got two outstanding books. I haven't read the second one. The first one, got that. Haven't read the second one. Excited to start because the cover is just phenomenal. Anyway, it's like, ooh, it's like, sexy you know yeah um is there a third book possibly brewing so it's funny i go through this cycle and it's now happened twice where i had a goal to write a book and i achieved that goal and it's kind of like i equate it you know my wife is is very athletic um and she's done a ton of competitions and you know everything from triathlons to crossfit to weightlifting to bodybuilding to everything and you know she talks about it after a big competition it's that letdown right you hear that from athletes all the time and i feel like with my writing it's very similar i've accomplished the goal of writing one book there's a letdown and you're just like oh man i i don't know do i really want to go through this process again it is not a simple process and and i in, i thoroughly enjoy from the first word to the end of the first draft. I love that part. After that, I loathe every part that has to come with putting out a book, coming up with the cover art, coming up with the formatting and the editing. Oh, God help me with the editing. And, you know, the audiobook. Now I've learned things, right? So I outsource the cover art, which you could see on both books, and they do a fantastic job, in my opinion. I outsource the editing because I am not an editor by any stretch of the imagination. I could be, I don't want to be. Um, the audiobook, I outsource all that because I, and that is a funny story of how I got linked up with my my friend now, um, the audiobook narrator. But I know where my strengths are, and it is not in any of those fields. So I will lean on other people in those fields. But it is a lot of work. I mean, I spent hours yesterday listening to first drafts of the audiobook from a guy, Mike Dawson, who is a fantastic audiobook narrator. I mean, it is his voice is sick. It's perfect. It's still exhausting because I have to sit there and listen to this stuff real time. So it, it beats me up. That being said, I went through this whole same process and then came up with Vengeance Flight because at some point the process was over. The book was out in every format it could be out. It's getting good reviews. It felt good. And I go, there's more to this story. So vengeance flight. Then I'm now in that same thing where 
the hardcovers out there, the paperbacks out there, the ebooks out there. We're finishing up the audiobook, right? I'm feeling that letdown, but I'd be lying if I didn't already have a plan for a third book because it's already in my head. Some stuff's already on paper. Oh. So, but I ended Vengeance Flight in a manner that it could just end if it needs to. So, but I also left the door open a little bit. Um, if I was a betting man, I would say there's going to be a third, at least a third book in this series. I think there's more to write. There's more story to tell. Um, there's too many there's too many open-ended things that I think the readers want. And one of the things that writing that's very interesting to me compared to anything else in my career, because let's be honest, aviation is all about me, right? I mean, if we're being honest, right? Like you, you go fly an airplane. I mean, there was definitely a huge uh, pride when I flew the E2 to know that my crew was going to get back safely if I was at the controls, right? Day or night, no matter what happened to me in the E2, I'm bringing them home to their family, period. Hornet, it's a little bit more about me, right? Single seat fighter pilot, tip right. of the spear. Look how cool I am. If I die, eh, it's just me. I don't really affect anybody else. Um, but then at the airlines, right? There's 194 people behind me. But let's be honest, there's every pilot out there. There is an element of it's about you, right? I mean, it, it's. I don't want to say that I don't care about the passengers because I genuinely do care about the passengers. But one of the biggest advantages the passengers of my planes have is that I don't want to die in a plane crash either. And I happen to be the first one in line. So a lot of that is about me. When it comes to writing, it's completely different. And it's all about the reader. And when I look at this, and I really thought about this for a long time, when somebody is willing to go online or, or email me because they want a signed copy, which is ridiculous to me still, um, but they, they want to take their money and get something for it that I'm selling. To me, that's huge. And it's not just the money aspect because we can all make more money, right? We're all old enough to know like, yeah, we made good decisions. We made bad decisions. I've, pl I've spent plenty of money on good things and a whole lot more on bad things. And you can always make more money. What you can't make is more time. So when somebody buys one of my books, they are giving me, to me, the most precious commodity they can give me, which is their time to read it because they're not getting that time back. The six, seven hours of the audiobook, the however long it takes them to get through the, the written book, I can't give them them back. I mean, I could give you a refund if you really hated the book. I'm not going to, but I could give you one, right? I can't refund your time. So to me, that's the reason why it's daunting because the process to me is important, not from a self perspective of I want it to be a good product for me because I really don't care. I want it to be a good product for the person reading it because I want them to feel a certain way. I want them to feel like they didn't waste their time. So that's why I think I put so much effort into it. I think that's why it's exhausting in a lot of aspects. It's why I'm up at 3 a.m. writing because it's quiet and I can. Um, it's why I edit and edit and edit and, and edit. And it's just because I want it to be a good product. So to answer your question with a very long answer, yes, there probably is going to be a third um, the weirdest part about this book is I think I already have a title and I haven't really even written much, which is very different because on the first two, I didn't know the title until after the book was done. So, okay. So not weird because I actually know the title of the book that I'm writing and I know the exact chapter it has to start at, which is not the beginning. Sure. I know exactly where it has to start. And I have got literally one sentence written. And I'm still working through because my book is very different from your book. Um, it is it is an autobiography, um, but it is about 
it's about my life, which has not been an easy one sure. growing up. There's so much nuance to how I grew up and all the challenges that I faced becoming who I am today. And it starts at quite literally the hardest spot in my life. And I have no idea why I'm being led to start it there because let's be fair, this subject is so difficult to talk about that most people may actually just shut the book and not keep going because it's going to rock them so badly that they may not even want to keep going because they're like, she's, but that's where it has to start. Yeah. And you have to go with your gut on that. Number one, right? So there's a couple of things I could offer. One, go with your gut. Always just believe in yourself and that right where you feel like it is, because that's going to come across to the reader. Number two, you'd be surprised. Like the prologues of the book, which I always put up um, the prologues of my books on my website so people can read them before they even buy the book. You know, everybody's like, wow, the prologues, like that's crazy. Well, the prologues for both of my books are true stories that happen to me. So they're the most genuine I can get. Now, the prologue to the second book, not 100% true, but 98% true. Um, but at any rate, the um, you're being genuine. And I think that captures the reader which makes them want to go. All they have to do is want to go to page one. That's it. And then once they're there, you've got them. And then they're going to read your story. Thirdly, if this helps, if they're reading that, they've already bought the book. So do you really care if they read the whole thing? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> right? So there is an element of like, you've already purchased it. So it's up to you what you want to do it. Well, I love it. And it's that that 1% win, you know, like they they bought the book. That's That's a little one step forward. You got through page one, one step forward. I mean, that's kind of the constant theme here. And I love it because I think that's wildly missing in so much of our life today. So speaking of the books and you and everything, I'm going to value the rest of your time because I know your kids are probably waking up from their naps. Please tell all the readers, listeners, uh, following, where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Where can we get the books? I mean, I've already got both books and I need to... Um, go to your house and get them signed. We already have the first book signed. Yep. So now we need our second book. You signed. need a hardcover um, on the second book too. Not that paperback. Just saying. If you're well, and I just didn't even realize that I didn't order the right one. Well, I was like, it, this whole release has been a mess on this one because of the story. And it's been out there a little bit of the Navy. Oh my gosh. Life. Yes. Um, that was a, so it has been kind of a mess, you know, when treason flight released everything, except for the audiobook, was out on day one. Uh, this one, the ebook and the paperback, which, you know, it's a full size paperback. It's not anything small, but it um, it that went out. And then the hardcover, which I actually have not even seen yet. It's been published on, gen, you know, three weeks, two weeks ago. I haven't even seen the hardcover yet. I will get one on Tuesday one. And then I will plan on ordering a few dozen for signed because, again, that still cracks me up that people want my signature. But doesn't crack me up. I mean, it makes total sense. It's just, it's funny, it, but that's cool. And I, I, if that's what people want, I dig that. And um, I mean, I have books with people signature. I just don't think of myself as being on the other end of that. But for me, um, I tried to make it easy and it really, really worked out. And you talk a lot about business and, you know, people being entrepreneurs and things like this and, and being a writer is no different is I think true level of success in today's world with social media and everything online and people with seven second attention spans, and I'm being generous there, is they need to be able to find you right now. So everything I write under is on under TR Matson. That's 100% what I write under. If you Google TR Matson, the first hit is my website. And my website has everything. So, um, but along with that, Twitter, Instagram, everything's TR Matson author. Um, and it just makes it easy. So it's it's funny that uh, it just worked out that way. But it's, 
either that, I guess there's not a lot of other people that do anything with my initials and last name or something, but that's what's out there. So if you Google TR Matson or the website's trmatson.com, that's where you'll find links to literally everything. Plus other examples of writing, you know, from back in the day that I wrote, um, motivational aviation, um, a couple articles of friends I've lost that I've kind of written tributes to. Um, that's all in there as well. There's some merchandise if you're into that, but not necessarily, you know, but everything's done in house. You know, I, you know, if, if somebody wants to order something from me, it, it's my wife or I packaging it up and sending it out because to me, that's oh important. Gosh, that's so, awesome. um, you know, I could outsource all that to a site, but I'd rather keep the personal touch on it because again, it's, there's a connection there. So. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love the level of humility that you bring to this entire process about caring for the people who are purchasing your materials and ingesting that. And the timepiece can't even speak enough to that. So that's beautiful. I do have one last question because this is a question from my kids and it's really bothering them. What is the R? They know Todd, they know the name Matson. What's R? Richard is my middle name. Richard, okay, which, I'm gonna tell them that. Yeah, which they were was- like, well, what's the middle name? Yeah. like, actually, I don't know. Yeah, so in our family, my father's middle name is Richard and also my son's middle name is Richard. So that's what our tradition is, is that we pass down. We don't do first names because we don't. Um, so yeah, so, and even okay. now we're starting that with our daughter too, as she has the same middle name as my wife to try to have that connection, that family. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. I love it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm going to have to re-listen to this myself because there was so much gold that you just brought to this episode. I can hardly quantify every lesson that you just threw at people. Like you're going to have to watch this again or listen to this again and start taking notes. I mean, it was blew my mind. Don't take them too closely. I don't want to get in trouble for, <laughs> but, but no, <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we a whole conversation of the DOD yes. part. And it was but... really fun. And, you know, I, thanks for having me on and I'd love to come back on. It's fun to talk. And it was, it was a good time. It really was. So I think you have a good message. Don't stop with that message because there is a ton of people out there that need to hear it. Um, and unfortunately in today's day and age, they need to hear it every day. And, you know, it's not, it's not a world where you hear a message one day and then you're good. Like it's just a light switch. It's every day. It's a grind every day. You have to be reminded of your worth and how it's, it's worth what you're doing. And I think you do that. So keep doing that. And if I fit into any of that and you'd like to talk again, by all means, I'll do it and be fun. I love it. Thank you. Thanks. All right, friends. Never down, never out. Peace.